that he gets it campaign, he gets us campaign, has produced television videos that stress that Jesus gets our lives because he was human too. Last week we talked about how Jesus experienced family crisis. We'll show a video and talk about how Jesus experienced family conflict as well. There was a family. They played together and laughed together. But they weren't completely alike. And as they grew older, their opinions widened and they distanced from each other. Conversations became heated. Reunions became more and more uncomfortable. They thought they were made for each other. Only thinking of one another. Brother aligned against sister. Never thinking just for one second. Birthdays were ignored. Gatherings stopped. Attraction. Because each had to be right. We don't want them. Oh no. We don't want them. We don't want them. We don't want them. We don't have a lot of information about Jesus' family life, scant information about what his life was like growing up. The details we do have indicate that having a God child in the family, uh, put a strain on family ties. It says in Luke 2, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Jesus knows that God is his father. In Judaism at the time, you weren't allowed to say God's name. It was that holy. And the first words a Jewish son or daughter would learn were Emma and Abba. Emma is Mama. Abba is Daddy. When Jesus referred to God, he not only said his name, he called him Abba, Daddy. Um, he knows that God is his father. However, he is stuck between honoring God as his father and understanding that he has an earthly mother or father. And he, in this text, submits to their authority for the time being. Anyways, what ends up happening, Joseph passes away sometime, we think, between 12 and 30, passed away, left the family, we don't know. But he is not on the scene when Jesus turns 30, and things changed dramatically. At age 30, Jesus 
hangs up his tool apron, becomes an itinerant traveling rabbi with disciples. Um, we find that after Jesus selected his disciples and started to meet with them, Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. So what happened, Jesus, when he began his public ministry for about a year and a quarter to a year and a half, did a lot of miracles, traveled around, and then about a year and a half, quarter to a year and a half in, he selects 12 disciples. And from there on in, he travels, not alone, but with these disciples. When he talks to people and does miracles, he does that. The disciples are with him, and then he always retreats with them. His goal then is to help them to understand who God is and how God thinks and feels. As his time spent with his disciples grows, his family gets concerned. They see, they feel that Jesus' commitment to his disciples is unbalanced and unacceptable. And they make the trip, Jesus' brothers and his mother, to go because they have concluded that he is crazy, that he's lost his senses, he's beside himself, he's out of his mind, and he can't make good judgment. So they went to take charge of him and here's what happened. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. So he's in the house. They're outside of the house. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. We don't get the sense that Jesus went out. What he ends up doing is he replied, my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. He refuses to leave his disciples. They want him to come with them, and he in no uncertain terms says, no. And he stays where he believes the Father wants him to be. He doesn't even go out and speak to them. They are left there wondering why he won't come out to see them. Needless to say, they leave with heavy hearts and grave concerns. It's not hard to imagine the pressure that they're under, the tension created by Jesus' unwillingness to conform to family standards will only increase over time and become alarming. The problem is that when you make decisions, the kind of decisions that Jesus made, it not only affected your family, it affected everyone around. And so there, was, there would be other families putting a lot of pressure on Jesus' family. Can't you get him to do what he needs to do? You're attracting attention. The Romans aren't going to like this. And, and what ends up happening, uh, his brothers get to the place where they want him to go away, perhaps permanently. It, in this passage, he has just indicated that he can't go to the southern part of Israel because they want to take his life. He can't go to Judah. And here's the conversation he has with his brothers. Now, Jesus' mother and brother, no, I'm sorry. It says, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here 
and go to Judea. That's where they, they are wanting to kill him. So his brothers say, hey, you know what? You should leave here from the northern part of Israel and go south. So that your disciples may see the miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. We don't have a lot of detail about what Jesus' life, life was like growing up, but what we do see is that there was a lot of tension created from knowing that he was connected to his family, and in another way, he wasn't. He belonged to his family, but they didn't believe him. They didn't understand him. So he was stuck in that middle. He felt the tension of being both comfortable with family and uncomfortable with family. And Jesus came to be part of a family so that he could experience that kind of discomfort. Why does he need to experience that discomfort? We need to understand that he knows it. We need to understand that he sympathizes with family conflict, not just family crisis, family conflict. And he gets that because he experienced it. Um, the, the brothers aren't thinking about peace in the family. They, they're not going to get peace in the family as long as Jesus is around. The tension increased as time passed, and the tension came to a crescendo at the cross. There's an article I'd like to read. In fact, I included a copy of several articles. I want to read the one if you want to follow along. It's the one that begins, Women Behold Your Son. It's from the book, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior, by Max Lucado. Um, it begins, Women Behold Your Son. And he writes, Mary is older now. The hair at her temples is gray. Wrinkles have replaced her youthful skin. Her hands are calloused. She has raised a house full of children. And now she beholds the crucifixion of her firstborn. One wonders what memories she conjures up as she witnesses his torture. A long ride to Bethlehem, perhaps. A baby's bed made from cow's hay. Fugitive is in Egypt, at home in Nazareth, panic in Jerusalem. I thought he was with you. Carpentry lessons, dinner table laughter. And then the morning Jesus came in from the shop early, his eyes firmer, his voice more direct. He had heard the news John was preaching in the desert. Her son took off his nail apron, dusted off his hands, and with one last look, said goodbye to his mother. They both knew it would never be the same again. In that last look, they shared a secret, the full extent of which was too painful to say aloud. Mary learned that day the heartache that comes from saying goodbye. From then on, she was to love her son from a distance, on the edge of the crowd, outside of a packed house, on the shore of the sea, Maybe she was even there when the enigmatic promise was made, anyone who has left mother for my sake. Mary wasn't the first one to be called to say goodbye to loved ones for the sake of the kingdom. Joseph was called to be an orphan in Egypt. Jonah was called to be a foreigner in Nineveh. Hannah sent her firstborn son away to serve in the temple. 
Daniel was sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nehemiah was sent from Susa to Jerusalem. Abraham was sent to sacrifice his own son. Paul had to say goodbye to his heritage. The Bible is bound together with goodbye trails and stained with farewell tears. In fact, it seems that goodbye is a word all too prevalent in the Christian's vocabulary. Missionaries know it well. Those who send them know it too. The doctor who leaves the city to work in the jungle hospital has said it. So is the Bible translator who lives far from home. Those who feed the hungry, those who teach the lost, those who help the poor, all know that word goodbye. Airports, luggage, embraces, taillights, wave to grandma, tears, bus terminals, ship docks, goodbye daddy, tight throats, ticket counters, misty eyes, write me. Question, what kind of God would put people through such agony? What kind of God would give you families and then ask you to leave them? What kind of God would give you friends and then ask you to say goodbye? Answer, a God who knows that the deepest love is built not on passion and romance, but on common mission and sacrifice. Answer, a God who knows that we are only pilgrims and that eternity is so close that any goodbye is in reality a see you tomorrow. Answer, a God who did it himself. Woman, behold your son. John fastened his arm around Mary a little tighter. Jesus was asking him to be the son that a mother needs and that in some ways he never was. Jesus looked at Mary. His ache was from a pain far greater than that of the nails and thorns. In their silent glance, they again shared a secret, and he said, goodbye. When you think about families in the Bible, Joseph, Moses, David, I can't think of many families that didn't experience genuine deep struggle. I can't think of many blissful families. Um, the family conflict that Jesus experienced is not just from what he did. It's also from what he said. He said some things that are hard to understand because they seem to fly in the face of the kind of things the Bible talks about with respect to family. Love your mother and father. Um, says large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, hate his wife and children, hate his brothers and sisters, Yes, even hate his own life. He cannot be my disciple. How do we make sense of a statement like this? It's hard to reconcile honoring with hating. Hard to reconcile loving with hating. It's worth remembering that 
I think Jesus is speaking in this passage. He is not speaking to Christians in general. I don't think he's looking down through the ages and speaking to us. There's a specific group that Jesus is speaking to here. They are the 12 disciples. He looks at them and what he indicates to them, if they are going to follow him, they are not going to experience the gratitude and best wishes of his family. At that time, Israel was a theocracy. And what Jesus is going to do is going to cause him to become an enemy of the state. Again, it would be like breaking Islamic law. It's not just a religious infraction. It's a governmental infraction because in Israel, there was no separation between church and state. Jesus is going to become a criminal and those who follow him are going to incur the distaste and disgust of everyone around him. And if you are Jesus' mother and brothers, they're going to say, can't you keep that kid under control? You're not only threatening yourself, you're threatening all of us. Jesus understands what it's like to deal with tension. And Jesus then is speaking as a rabbi speaks to disciples. We've talked about this before, but there's several layers of education in Israel. The first level is approximately six years, and you learn the Torah from age six to 12. Then the second stage for those students who are particularly bright, not many get to go to the second level, which from age 13 and 14, where you end up learning the rest of the Old Testament, 39 books. Those who are especially bright at age 15 become disciples of a rabbi. They have to be selected. It's like graduate school, but it's more restrictive. And if you are selected by a rabbi, your job as the disciple was to sit at the feet of the rabbi, to look at life the way the rabbi looks at life. You didn't scramble around from this rabbi to that, from this teacher to that. You sat in one place and you spent so much time with this rabbi that you talked like he talked, you thought like he thought, you actually acted like he acted. They tell stories about disciples walking down the street and the rabbi is limping. And, you know, it's like, the, I forget what the, the, the rabbi said, you know, walk this way. And, you know, and then, then they walk that way. Um, the, but the, the sense is to be, for a disciple to be one with a rabbi, thinks like the rabbi. That's what Jesus came to do. And those disciples that he called would pay a price for the process of sitting at his feet. Uh, there were expectations placed upon those who entered into a formal educational relationship with a rabbi like Jesus. And that's why when Jesus says things like this and other things, I think these are shepherd verses. They're not sheep verses. I don't think Jesus is telling us, hate your mother and brother and your father and your wife. He's talking specifically at this juncture in salvation history to these 12 individuals who, if they understand what he's saying, is going to pass it on. 
He's speaking to them. Are there applications to us? Perhaps. But it's, it's the, the kind of force, the kind of you have to withdraw. It's not, Jesus isn't confronting us with it. And so verses like this, do not suppose I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Some of us don't understand this. Some of us don't have didn't grow up in homes like this. Um, but when you think of it, what Jesus is going to want to do is tell the disciples a message that they will share with other Jews and ultimately will share with Gentiles. At this time, if you're a Jew, there's two kinds of people on the earth. There are Jews and there's everyone else, and those are called Gentiles. And Jews were raised to believe that Jews are the called ones, the chosen ones, and that you don't share this faith with Gentiles. So if you're a part of a family and you're called and you follow Jesus' call to give this message to others that are non-Jews, your family is not going to like it. And if you are bound to your family and you know that you're not going to just... You're not going to disagree with your family. You're not going to be able to do what Jesus says. That's why when Jesus speaks to his disciples at this point, he says, you're going to follow me. And what it's going to cost for you to follow me is you're not going to have your best life now. And the reason why Jesus calls disciples is so that the message would go to Gentiles. And so 2,000 years later, we're in a position to be able to hear the good news because of the price that the first group paid. Jesus went on, says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Again, is there application for us here? Yes, there is. But not the push that existed in the first century. These are, again, shepherd verses, not sheep verses. They had greater privileges and responsibilities. And they had greater burdens and sufferings as well. There's an article that we'll close with. Again, if you want to read along from 2 Corinthians. The Vase for Grace. It's for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Reproduction is painful. This is true both physically and spiritually. 
Individuals through whom God conceives spiritual life pay a price for doing so. They are given over to death for Jesus' sake. In the eyes of the majority of sacred authorities in Paul's day, those chosen by God to be his spokespersons received special treatment from God as a part of that call. Competing spiritual leaders who were attempting to discredit Paul in Corinth were using this hypothesis against him. They argued that the harsh treatment Paul experienced in his missionary endeavors proved that God was not with him. It is taxing when God's servants experience difficulties as a requisite part of being his ambassadors. It is crushing when this harsh treatment is chalked up to God's punishment. Paul countered that those to and through whom God made his light shine had this treasure in jars of clay. To be treated as a jar of clay is to be hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. According to Paul, God's chosen messengers do not experience extraordinary treatment. Rather, God subjects them to ordinary treatment to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The suffering Paul experienced was directly related to his being called by God to proclaim the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. The fact is that God's spokespersons suffer because they are doing something right not because they are doing something wrong. Those who God uses to bring sons and daughters to him will experience suffering as a part of this process. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, or whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of self, their salvation perfect through suffering. In our day, it is not uncommon for those who advance the gospel to identify health and wealth as blessings God gives to those who serve him. It's common to hear appeals such as, follow God and you will experience the same blessings I experience. These are the same spiritual sales pitches that Paul was combating in Corinth. Paul indicated that those to whom and through whom God generates spiritual life will have physical and or emotional scars to show for it. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to orphans in India. Back in the 1920s, Amy rescued hundreds of orphaned children, especially little girls that would be dedicated to Hindu gods for use in sexual temple rituals. In 1931, Amy prayed, God, please do with me whatever you want. Do anything that will help me to serve you better. That same day, she fell suffering fractures that would cripple her for the rest of her life. While her growing children had continual freedom to enter her bedroom and share their hearts with their beloved mother, she now had the quiet times that allowed her to write books, poems, and letters that were translated and shared around the world. Her poem, Hast Thou No Scar, captures Paul's heart in this passage. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee song as mighty in the land. 
I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that encompassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole, can he have followed far, who hast no wound, Oscar. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, you care for us, and because you care for us, you recruited in the first century individuals who had to walk away from their life in order to bring good news that we could enjoy 2,000 years later. And it seems to be true of those who you called at that point that they did need to walk away from their life. We don't, we're not called to the same degree of sacrifice most often. Some are, but those initial ones that you dispatched so that we could hear the good news paid a price for doing so. As we're we say often, the inclusion, the gospel, is a free gift, absolutely free. We can't merit it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it by experiencing difficulties. It's a free gift. And yet, the cost of postage and handling was costly. Yes, I want to thank you for calling out those individuals into difficult lives so that 2,000 years later we could have this good news. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.